Hello, friends, and welcome to Backstory. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. By the time you're hearing this, I'm going to be at the Origins Game Fair in Columbus, Ohio. If you're going to be there, I would love to see you. You can find me at Games on Demand on Saturday morning, Saturday evening, and probably most excitingly, Friday night, because at 8, I'll be co-facilitating a run of Space Station Phobolex, the massive star-crossed WideCon, where we'll have eight tables running simultaneously in a shared universe. What happens at each table affects the stories at all the other tables. It's very cool. We did it at Big Bad Con last year, and we had such a blast. So if you can make it to that, that would be lovely. I'd love to game with you. But otherwise... You can find me at the Evil Hat Productions booth running demos of For the Queen on Thursday morning, Friday afternoon, and Saturday afternoon. And pretty much every other waking moment, I will be at booth 931 with Bully Pulpit Games, showing off some very cool new stuff and selling the very last copies from our first print run of Starcrossed. So if you don't have a hard copy of that yet, great place to pick it up. And honestly, going to be a very cool booth to hang out at. It's going to be a good time. Speaking of good times, I am excited to share today's interview with you. My guest today is Sang Jun Park, a designer and translator in the Korean RPG scene, whose new game Moonflower is going to be the first original Korean RPG to be published in English. We talk about making stuff from the heart, sharing things with the widest audience, and little narcissistic visions of the future. Let's jump right in. I wanted to ask you about working in translation. How how did you get involved in in translating RPGs into Korean? Well, okay. So my um, education background is in linguistics, and well, the thing is, when I went to college, my family was really pushing me toward uh, chemical engineering and whatnot, the useful sciences. <laughs> Right. I, I can't stand those. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, I mean, I have a Korean family and it's really, it's stereotypical, but, you know, there's a push toward, you know, to be useful as in make a lot of money. But I was kind of rebellious because I grew up in the States and I was like, I'm going to study what I want. So I got a degree in linguistics and psychology, and after that, I had to find a job. Well, it turns out using those degrees to use when I'm in Korea is in translation. So I started translating everything while playing role-playing games, and after some years, they kind of overlapped. So I started translating role-playing games to Korean and to English usually um, freely available or small projects. What were some of those early projects? Yeah, one of the earliest that I translated is an introduction to the broader indie role-playing game world to Korean. Was It was won by Sean F. Smith. It was called, oh, and Slay You Witches, I think. It's been years. But it was basically a parody from a line from Hamlin. 
It's about fighting the witches with rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> and I thought that was really interesting because, well, one thing about role-playing games in Korea is that it's really, I mean, years ago, it was really set. Like a role-playing game must be played with dice. It must be about slaying monsters and stealing their stuff. But I was looking at games like those, like playing, you know, the game mechanism is a structured rock, paper, scissors, or the game resolution could be done with cards. I thought that was really interesting. So I just started to introduce those stuff to Korean gamers. And was, was there much of a scene back then? And, and I'm also curious, what was being played a lot? What was, what was the, the popular game at that time? Um, there was, let me think, 2013, 14. Yeah, the biggest thing, biggest games then were like GURPS or D&D in some places. And there was also a lot of games being run in Fate Core. Actually, Fate Core is after 2014, I think. It must have been a previous edition of Fate. Because I, I had heard that in, in Korea, the, the kind of original, the, the first big role-playing game wasn't D&D. And I'd heard that I think Call of Cthulhu and GURPS were, were really big. Oh, yeah. Um, GURPS was the biggest because it was the only one that was available in Korean for quite a while. That is so interesting. What what do you think that does to people's like basic assumptions about what a game is and what, what it should do? Well, to my knowledge, I was actually not in Korea when GURPS was the only one in Korea. But, you know, listening to people, GURPS was usually not the first game that they picked up. Actually, that's a lie. It's the first game they picked up but not the first game that they played because it was so complex for newcomers. <laughs> yeah. So GURPS became a thing that people use as references or inspirations, but there are people who ran successful campaigns or one-shots with GURPS. There's actually one friend of mine who's, who's called the... Uh, Gopsangin, uh, his name, he goes by the handle Autumnim, and he just took GURPS and went wild with it. <laughs> Basically made new games based off the framework. So people are experimenting with GURPS, and I think they might have something to do with how people are trying new things in Korea right now. So they were given this toolkit and they just, you know, put together parts and made new games or new premises. And yeah, they might have been one of the, what's the word? Like early signs of the trends in Korean role-playing games. So, so this is interesting. So in Korea, GURPS is the, is the main thing. It's the most accessible or well, not by its design, but a materially accessible game. Meanwhile, you're in the States playing 
probably at that time, I assume like D and D was that would have been like fourth ed. Oh, it's there's a funny thing. I've been playing role playing games for sixteen years. Like I've been playing games longer than I have not in my life. <laughs> Yet I've played D and D for I know this exactly forty three minutes, and that's it. <laughs> What happened? Well, one time I um, joined this one chat. Right, it was like. The dungeon master was looking for a player, and they just he they just just snatched me to play with him. So I was playing this orc fighter. I don't even know the terminology. Yeah, and I was playing for thirty minutes, and then it fell apart because the other players had to go somewhere. So there was thirty minutes. Another time was.、Uh, oh, this is it's forty three minutes across two distinct sessions. <laughs> okay, proceed.、So、the proceed. first time, the first time was like thirty times thirty minutes max. Then the second time was a full game. We were going to you know make our characters get our items and whatnot. So the session starts and it just. Falls apart immediately. There was like what thirty minutes, thirteen、uh, minutes, I think. And then it, everyone was just like, "Nah," and just left. Well, it was the second time was meant to be a prologue. Like we just made these characters. Let's get used to them, and we just, you know, did whatever we wanted, and it just faded away over time. That that is a very、um, that is a very classic experience. I have had this. <laughs> you spend a lot of time making a character. You're pretty stoked on it. You get a little bit into it, and then I don't know. Session session zero is kind of fun, and then session one just never happens. I feel like there's probably more. That's yeah. There's there's probably more session zeros than there are like just regular sessions of Dungeons and Dragons. So, so this is interesting, but you obviously have stuck with gaming,、um, regardless of your experience with that particular system.、Um, when you went back to Korea and you had been playing, what kinds of things were you really stoked to bring with you? You mentioned these, like,、um, you mentioned really small things and things that use different resolution systems. The games that I have seen in Korean are、uh, like Fiasco, Monster Hearts. Um, Fall of Magic, a lot of like really like super classic, really like durable story games.、Um, were you involved in in bringing those over at all? Oh, I was not actually. I was usually、um, I was mostly involved in the the free game, freely available games, and games like Fiasco and Fall of Magic were bigger projects that. The the so Dayspring Games was well is one of the biggest RPG publishers out of seven in Korea, and they are the ones who brought those games. And I was well, I was talking to people online asking if it's okay to introduce their games to Korean, 
And it's only very recent that I was actually paid to translate games. There's actually one unannounced project that I don't think I'm allowed to speak about. Oh, no. Now I want to know so badly. (laughs) Oh, it's... it's, ah, I I wish I I could talk about it because it's so exciting. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, lis- listeners, follow me on Twitter, and I will t- I will tweet about it when when Sangjin can actually announce it. Look at this! Look at this advanced hype. <laughs> <laughs> well, so well in Korea we say it's a uh, there's a word for it, Tongbal, and it's uh, it's an abbreviation of Tongsik Palme, which is formal publication, and yeah. So the Tongbao is kind of complicated because you have to, you know, it's a deal between two publishers, one in Korea and one in elsewhere. And then you have to translate the game. And usually the game has been, you know, the game was being played in Korea already. That's why the publisher picked it up. So there's a deal with, you know, retranslating or coordinating translation. It's a complicated process, but I've been, I guess, I guess, what's the word? Working the shades. Yeah, I, I know that with translation, I feel like the, the interpersonal side of it and the, the business side of it is just as complicated as the actual translation of the text, like just making those arrangements and making sure everybody's good and understands each other. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's something that I, I don't think seems very complicated until you get into it. Oh, yeah. Well, as a translator, my um, skill set was in translation, in words. So I'm kind of getting to know the process by working on Moonflower, trying to bring it to the wide audience. And doing the Zhongbao thing, it's at least twice as hard. And I think I'll remain a full hire translator rather than <laughs> the project leader. Unless it's my own game. I mean, if it's my own game, I have, you know, I have the unworded pure ideas in my head. I can just translate them or rewrite them as I go. And another thing is, it's my project, so I kind of have to do it. <laughs> that kind of deal. <laughs> yes, it's true. No one, no one is going to care about it as much as you do, right? Yeah, that that is very very true. Um, I I would love to chat about Moonflower for a bit. I, I was so compelled um, a while ago. I, I think it's it must have been during or maybe just after uh, Jason Morningstar visited Korea, and I think I and was if you didn't notice insanely stoked about it. <laughs> I was sharing a lot, and and at some point on Twitter, I just saw this screenshot of a piece of paper or screenshot, you, you know, picture of a piece of paper that just said, after ten thousand six hundred and forty eight years flowers bloom again in the garden. And 
everybody on my timeline was flipping out about this. This was the only thing that we knew about this game and everybody was losing their minds. Um, myself included. I was like, what is this? I have to play this. What's happening? I don't, I don't know anything else. I don't need to know anything else. Give, give it to me. There is, there is obviously something that you struck with that line. There's something that you hit on. What is that? What do you think about that is speaking to people? Ah, that's a hard question because, well, to be honest, it's not the first time that that's been brought up to me. And I'm going to be honest, I have no idea. <laughs> because, okay, so here's the thing. So Moonflower actually began as a, I mean, you may or may not believe it, but it began as a joke. So one day after work, I just asked people for three game ingredients and I challenged myself to make a game out of them in 72 hours at the punishment of having to buy, having to buy someone a coffee if I fail to do it. <laughs> so 72 hours or I'm going to have to, you know, buy someone a coffee. I didn't want to do that. So I made a game in 72 hours. Yeah, so it happened in 72 hours, and that, exclu uh, that included time for sleep, work, food, socialization, and so on. So I had about, what, 20, 25 hours maximum to actually work on the game. And, and that's Moonflower. Moonflower came out of that. That's how it started. So I was just rushing myself to get a full game ready, playable, enjoyable, and thinkable. So I just didn't think about anything. I just wrote words as they came to me. And that line was actually one of the first things that I wrote down. I can't really answer that because I have no idea what I was thinking. They just came to me like they just visited me. They possessed me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When, when you're in that kind of zone where you're like, I just, I need to make something. This just needs to go. My hand just needs to keep moving on the page. Some really amazing stuff can come out of that because you're not criticizing yourself. You're not censoring yourself. And I don't know, just letting stuff happen. Yeah, that was the biggest lesson I've learned from working on Moonflower. Because, well, I've been, you know, putting stuff together for quite a while. One script project was like 250 pages long. It, it was about a really cool topic, but the game was so overwrought and so overwritten. So I just threw it away. It's in my trash bin. I can't throw away the trash bin because it's my first big game in it. But the problem with that was even though I was writing so much, even though I was writing so many words, I was just, just reviewing everything as I write them down. Like, is this word good enough? Is this mechanism sensible? 
And that's super stressful and not very conducive to creativity, I think. So that joke about making a game in 72 hours, well, it was only a half joke because I was trying to do the opposite of what I usually do. So I just typed furiously, put together game ideas as they came along. And I think, I think that's what made, that's what made Moonflower what it is. I mean, I am afraid, I am definitely afraid to use the word, but I think Moonflower is the most authentic game I've made because of it. Yeah, it's something that really just, just comes from you and, and is just what was in you and not I, I don't know. I'm having trouble. I am also having trouble articulating it. And I see why why authentic really is just the word for it. Like it just, it is of you. It's unfiltered, unprocessed, untreated. It's just raw sangjun, I guess. So, something I notice about it, um, I was just kind of reading through the text today, is how gentle the language is. A lot of the instructions are very, um, they're specific, which is important to me, um, but uh, but they're, they're very much encouraging of what you could do. And they're very kind of gently like, let this guide you, let this shape your decision-making, allow this to happen. There's an emphasis on kind of trusting your interpretation of the rules. I wonder, who do you have in mind as you're putting this together, who do you see playing this? This answer might sound weird, but when I make a game, I imagine myself playing it first. Okay. And so you're writing to yourself, you're writing what you need to hear? Basically, I think. Yeah, so when I was, I'm not even sure if that gentle language was a conscious decision, but it's just from my experience with, you know, other bigger role-playing games. It's kind of a criticism, but I kind of hate how there's the way to play a game. And that just never rang with me. It just felt wrong. Like having the right way to play is the wrong way to play. So that's something that's been on my mind for, what, 15, 14 years. So they must have happened because of that. I mean, it's kind of personal, but I, I'm really anarchic about a lot of things. And my friends have called me a gaming anarchist because... When, I, when I'm running games, I was like, ah, you know, screw this rule. Throw this rule away. We're going to play it this way. Oh, it's, it can't happen according to rules. Screw the rules. Who cares about the rules? <laughs> I can hear the sunglasses on your face right now. It's very intimidating. <laughs> uh, so, and usually that's, when I do that, that's usually... When I have the most fun mm -hmm. from a gaming session, 
So with the Moonflower, I think I was trying to encourage that that the rules are not really rules. They are more suggestions, guidelines. Mm -hmm. You know, this could be more fun this way instead of the other. But if you think the other is better, it's not my business. Right. You just go ahead and do it that way. Mm -hmm. I do. I have no authority over you. <laughs> that kind of deal. I'm not gonna come out. Come after you. That's interesting. So you, you're really writing this thing to say, you know, I wish that games that just t just talked to me this way, that just said, give this a shot, try this you know, go in this general direction, see what happens. Moonflower uses uh, tarot cards. And that is very, very much about interpretation and seeing things in the context in which they appear and asking questions rather than, you know, being having just answers delivered to you. W what is your relationship to tarot in general? Personal thing first. I... Okay, so actually, instead of the personal, cultural thing first. So fortune reading, like palm reading, tarot cards, and, you know, even rice casting. That kind of thing is really common in Korea. Like far more common than what I've seen when I was growing up in the States. Actually... There's a fortune reading place right above my office. Yeah, it's really common. And I actively dislike that. I actively dislike the idea of knowing the future. Really? It just seems like it takes the fun out of it. <laughs> sort of. Yeah, that's why actually, that's actually the reason I use tarot cards for Moonflower. Because if you get a, if you get, you know, a set of cards, a three cards, and you have no idea what they mean right now, but they're guiding you, they're suggesting that this might happen in the story. And you're just taking the suggestion and finding out discovering the future in the story. So I guess it's kind of a kind of a deconstruction of what tarot cards might mean to a lot of people. But it might also be a reconstruction. Huh. It's interesting. I I've been working on this game for like seven, eight months now, and I'm still discovering things about this game. <laughs> Well, I mean, that this comes back to, you know, the way in which it was made. You just kind of, you, you toss it out there in this free associating way. And then later you get to analyze it. Because that's the thing about drafting is that then you have to ask yourself those questions. Like, wait, what am I trying to do here? What is this saying? This is saying something. What did I, what did I accidentally just blurt out via a game? Do you learn things about yourself when you're making? I do. I certainly do. Especially with the, especially with the process I had with Moonflower. So after, after three days, I had a game and I triumphantly released it on Twitter saying, I made a game like I promised. I no longer have to buy anyone a coffee. 
and it was fun. And I looked at the game I made, and I was just wondering, what the hell is this about? And then I realized it's about a lot of things. And one of the things was me. Because when I was working on Moonflower the first time, I was working a really high stress job for rather, for rather stressful organization. I mean, it was really rewarding work in a lot of ways, but it was super stressful. And I was thinking, why am I doing this? Why, why did I take this job? I knew this was going to happen. I knew I was going to work, you know, overnight for several days in a row and then just get this, you know, transaction draft thrown at me. I did it regardless. I didn't know it. I didn't know why at that point, but thinking back, I was in it for the money. <laughs> yeah. Like it paid well. Yeah. I've been there. And, yeah. <laughs> and there's, you know, there's that social atmosphere, like, you know, there's higher pleasure in life than money or money doesn't matter, whatnot. But if, if I'm really honest with myself, that's bullshit. <laughs> I mean, money doesn't buy happiness, but money certainly buys a way out of sadness, of out of pain. I did that. I took the job because I needed money and I compromised with myself by doing that. Because I, I've been a real idealistic person in my, you know, throughout my life. And I told myself, I'm like, I'm so principled. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to compromise. And then I did give in and I did compromise. And at that point, that was actually the bigger source of stress for me than the work. But yeah, I worked on Moonflower and I realized it's a game of a compromise about giving in. And it just clicked. I was writing this game to say something to me. It's a game about me. It's, this game is me. Like compromises are not inherently bad. Like you have to compromise or someone else will be hurt. You have to compromise or you are going to be hurt. You have to give in sometimes to prevent pain. But it's not that kind of that kind of compromises are not bad per se. They're just different ways of changing, different ways of adapting to the new world. It's the destruction of the previous ways of living and accepting the new ways. So do, do you think, I mean, do you think that this is an expression of how you were feeling about this or is it is it changing your perspective is 
is going through it kind of giving you a new perspective on on any of that aspect of your life? Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> it is. Well, it's so the thing with the moonflower is. So I was working on moonflower. I made this game. It's in its, you know, early stages. I was done with the job, and at that moment, I decided I'm gonna do this for real. Like this game design thing, this working with games thing. So it was kind of a reverse compromise, I guess. <laughs> Compromising with compromising, it's getting meta. Yeah. Very. Yeah, yeah. Abstraction. Oh yeah. So yeah, it was at a moonfall happened at a turning point in my life. I guess the whole process of having start, started Moonflower to bring it to bring it to a wide audience is ah, it's almost narcissistic. Sure, all art is. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, the game is about change. It happened while I was changing. And while working on it, I have changed and am changing. It makes me think, and I hope it does make other people think too. Because it's kind of, it's a fun kind of thinking that I'm doing right now. Well, I think, I think when, it, it's kind of ironic, but I think when you open yourself up to compromise, it actually causes you to think, about what's important, like to, to think about what your priorities are. Because if you're saying, okay, I'm willing to compromise, you're also starting to make decisions about what you are willing to change, right? If you're willing to say, okay, I'm, I'm not going to get A, but I'm, I need to get B and that's going to be my compromise. Or, or, you know, I'm willing to not get all three of these, but I need to get at least two of these. Or if I'm going to give up X, I need to get Y you know, or whatever it is. So it does kind of, I don't know, you, you're thinking about your values or thinking about what's really important to you. I mean, my experience with that job was, I mean, going in, I was thinking, you know, helping people out, putting together a textbook to help people be better at helping other people. It sounds all really positive and socially constructive. And I told myself I was not looking at the paycheck when I signed up for the job. I was on the assumption that I was doing it for the social benefit. Bah, no, I was definitely looking at the paycheck. <laughs> so realizing that I, yeah, you're right. I was, I was re-examining my values. Like, okay, so for the betterment of society, I'm doing this, and also for the betterment of my bank account. Well, I mean, your whole material circumstances, right? So, which is more important? Am I willing to sacrifice my, you know, personal well-being for the social well-being, or am I? okay 
with, you know, putting in so many work hours because of this and that. And with, with that, I think I knew myself better. So I think how that was reflected in Moonflower was in the game, you run into situations where it's, it's a bit simplified, but there are times when you have to accept the temptation of the blue flower or someone else will, or we are going to get stuck in this journey to the moon, or we are going to, you know, bring pain to others. But which is more important? What's the most important thing? So the game is designed to, you know, ask people what's important. Is it me? Or is it my values? Or is it other people? Or something more abstract? I, th I think you've, you've hit on something very... Um... I don't know, something universal in a lot of the elements in this story, even though it's it's this very abstract, you know, almost fairy tale-ish, but but somehow also very sci-fi elements of your of a pilgrimage, you're going to the moon, the you know, the the planet looks a certain way, there's different kinds of flowers, everything is described in terms of fruits and flowers and these natural elements, and yet they're not anything specific and real. And I'm wondering, because something that I, I'm really interested in is what are the games that really work and really speak to a Korean audience? What are the Korean games that really work and speak to, you know, a North American or English-speaking audience and why? And I think there's so much in Moonflower that is just, I don't know, that, that feels universal. I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that. Because even though I'm a Korean person, I'm not the Korean people. So the, the tabletop role-playing games community in Korea is relatively small. But it's also really diverse. And even those certain sections of the community were really welcoming and enthusiastic about Moonflower. There were other groups in Korea, this relatively tiny community. People saying that Moonflower is just pretentious hipster, whatever, so on, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and some people really, really angry at the fact that it exists. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get, oh, did it get called Not A Real Game? Mm -hmm. Have you gotten that? Uh, not A Real Game? Oh, not a real game. I actually, I actually don't know if I heard that. <laughs> that would be an honor. I know, right? That's my. That's always what I'm going for. Like this needs to be. <laughs> this needs to be interesting enough and innovative enough that it that it just breaks. It it breaks the boundary for somebody. Somebody has to go. No. Nah. Yeah. I don't worry, Sang. I'm I'm sure someone out there is calling Moonflower not a real game. If I, if I hear about Thank it, you. I'll let you know. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, so, yeah. So, Moonflower is 
already evoking a really wide variety of reactions in Korea. So I don't know if I'm qualified to say, you know, this, this game, Moonflower, is the Korean game. Like, I'm not allowed to say that. <laughs> no, I don't think that would be a good call. <laughs> it's, um, I hope it opens a lot of doors, though. I mean, as far as I know, I think, I think this, this may be the first, like, original Korean game that is, that is being released widely in English. And I hope that, I mean, I hope the people who are mad about it are like, I'll show them and they make another game and, and release it to a big English audience. Like just whoever, for whatever reason, whether they're inspired or annoyed, I want to see more. I mean, do you, do you, do you think that that's going to happen? Do you, do you think that this could kick open the door for, for people? Well, I certainly hope that it does because that is my biggest ambition right now. Yeah, this is my biggest ambition right now to start, you know, start the bridge between the Korean community and the rest of the world. So there was a thread on Twitter where I talked about original Korean games that have been, you know, introduced to the English world yet. And people, uh, some of the people who've made those games were galvanized by the response that people, you know, that people showed in response to it. Interesting. What do you mean? Well, the thing is, before that, those creative people, they were just making games for, you know, idle amusement or just for their own self, you know, their own personal needs. But they saw that the wide world were interested in, interested in what we are making. And some of them, to my knowledge, were like, okay, so people are interested. Maybe we could do this in a bigger way, in a more formal, in a more structured way and people have been talking about you know making their games in a more full format to their own understanding and they're talking about you know just make them more available making them more sustainable and they might eventually lead to you know, those games being introduced to the wider world beyond the Korean Peninsula. And I've, I hope that I can help with that. Either with my, you know, professional talent or just encouragement or being someone who can, you know, provide advices on bringing games from Korea to elsewhere. It sounds like that's, it's experience that you want to share. You want it to be available. So th through your experience or connection to other people, that's obviously something that you want to share. I wonder, I mean, you, you talk about people being galvanized about, I don't know, it. <sighs> are there people who are just like, man, I just want to keep making games for me and my friends. I don't want 
there to be this like big, you know, international publishing thing behind it. Cause I can, I could see where a sentiment like that would come from. Well, to that, again, I'm not sure if I can really answer that because, you know, I only represent myself. So I do definitely want to share this experience of bringing a game from Korea to elsewhere. Because to my knowledge, nobody has done it yet. But yeah, if there are people, if there are Korean creators, game designers who want to bring their games to the wider world, then I definitely want to share the lessons I've learned like with Kickstarter and bureaucracy and paperwork. But yeah, so people are talking about making games actively right now, especially with Jason's talk at the SimCon. And it's happening, but since I'm not everybody, I don't know how many people are dreaming of, you know, conquering the world with their game. Some people might be dreaming of that. Some people might just think, you know, this sounds fun. This sounds accessible and do it for that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely see you as someone who is promoting other people a lot, like you know, when you're on Twitter or whatever, you're always talking about, oh, this other creator or this stuff that's happening or this game I'm really stoked about. Um, I'm curious, and you, and you talk about the community, you talk about the Korean gaming community. I'm, I'm curious about what you see as your role, besides just being a designer, in a community that is growing and that is changing a lot right now. I have so many answers to that question. <laughs> That's great. And some of them I I should not say because this is going to be publicly available and narcissism is looked down upon in Korea. But but I'm going to be honest, I like to think of myself as a a sort of someone who is blazing a trail for others. And yeah, I just wish the Moonflower might trigger a more worldwide interest in games that are being made in Korea. And even though Moonflower is not the essential Korean game, I hope it'll make people think, oh, what are they making there? And with with curiosity like that, people who are making games in Korea might be more daring in presenting their stuff to the world. So that's my um, shameless answer. I like that. And I think, you know, I mean, whatever, I can be narcissistic too. <laughs> I, have, I have ambitions. But I think what you're describing is really in the service of other people. You want that that interest and that hunger from the rest of the world and you also want, you know, the people around you to be proud of what they're doing and to just put it out there. I'm curious about what you see as the future of 
what is seeming to me like a more and more international gaming community. It's never been easier to follow people from the other side of the world and know what they're up to and doing and making and to just like openly be like having conversations to, to be reading and playing their work. It's, it's so different than it was five, 10 years ago. It's ridiculous. Um, I don't know. It's funny. We talked about not wanting to know the future, but do you, do you have any prognostications? I'm actually both excited and scared to know because I think the reason that Korea has its own gaming community is because it's disconnected from the rest of the world. So for five, 10 years, people didn't know that people playing role-playing games in Korea and people playing games in Korea, Korea didn't really contact the rest of the world because of the language barrier. And many games were unavailable in, you know, in Korean, even though they are universally popular, like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons or Vampire the Masquerade. They are just everywhere in the world, but not in Korea. But so people are just, people were adapting to those, what's the word, to those absences, those disconnections. And that's what made Korea different from the rest of the world, I think. And I'm, I'm pretty sure the same applies to other communities, other, other language-based communities around the world. So I'm really excited to see those games and find out how people have been playing elsewhere. But the thing I'm scared of is, oh, it's kind of political, but homogenization in imagination and creativity. I mean, that's, that'll probably be impossible, but I don't know, I'm just scared of it because I really like the fact that people are just doing their own things. Like nobody's the same, no community, no region, no culture is the same. And they make, they all make different games. And I both want to preserve that and exploit that. So it's interesting. So I guess my ultimate answer is I'd rather not know. <laughs> right. Right right back to fortune telling. Yeah. No, I, I, I can see that, right? One of the reasons why you want to share something is because of how distinctive and unique it is. And yet once everything starts being shared, then, then that does happen, right? People are influenced by each other, which is awesome. But then I I, I have I have had some of the same thoughts. Yeah. It's been very cool chatting with you, I have to say. It's been very interesting, and I'm really glad we could get together and chat. So folks should look out for the Moonflower Kickstarter very soon. I'm really, really interested. I'm really excited to see what happens there. Other than that, though, I mean, if my listeners want to keep up with you, 
hear about what you're doing, where should they go? Well, in English, I'm most active on my Twitter account. The account name is kind of hard to pronounce. I'll just spell it out. It's Hyofenkop, H-E-O-F-O-N-K-O-P-P-E. Hyofenkop. It's actually, I think to my knowledge, it's an old English translation of my Korean, much easier Twitter handle, Heaven Spider. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I don't know if I got it right, though. <laughs> That's but, that is very funny. Um, I will put a link to that in the show notes. No worries about that. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Ah, so thanks for inviting me. It was really, this was actually really fun. Yeah, I'm so glad we got a chance to chat. I feel like, <laughs> uh, I, I just, I never know where interviews are going to go. And I feel like this one went like really, went like kind of really internal and personal. Thanks again to Sangjun for joining me, and as always, thank you for listening. Is it weird that I want to play GURPS now? I mean, I want to play Moonflower more. If you have thoughts on today's show, you can email me at backstorypodcast at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at BackstoryCast. Backstory is hosted by me, Alex Roberts, and produced by the talented Alex Sisk. We're part of the One Shot Podcast Network, and you can go to oneshotpodcast.com to find more great shows like Adventure. Adventure is an actual play podcast that focuses on the fun of fan fiction and is set in your favorite fictional universes. Join host Pranks Paul as he takes a variety of guests through self-contained stories featuring Harry Potter, Pokemon, Animorphs, and so many, many more. Music for Backstory is provided by Ujiko. The track is called Thinking of You, and you can find more by searching U-J-I-C-O on YouTube or Spotify or wherever else you get your chill beats. Talk to you later, friends.